This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we confess this morning that you make all things new, including us. So Spirit, help us lift our thoughts, prayers, praises, and gazes toward you, upward toward you. Shine the light of Christ brightly within us. Warm our hearts this morning and remind us that we are an Easter people, unspotted by this world and unashamed of the gospel, mighty and wise in spirit, mighty and wise in truth, and mighty and wise in you. Christ, place your cross before us this morning and always. May it be for us always the measure and test of all things. Thank you, Father and Spirit, for raising the Son, which is the seal of our resurrection inheritance. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people all over the island and everywhere else said, Amen. All right, so I I was wondering, uh, y'all heard the one about the dead duck? All right, well, here it is. So this woman, she, she brings a very limp duck into the vet. And as she lays her beloved pet duck on the table, the vet puts his stethoscope to the bird's chest and listens carefully. And a moment later, he shakes his head and he does so sadly. And he says, I'm really sorry, ma'am, but your duck cuddles has passed away. The woman becomes quite distressed and begins to cry. Are you sure? She says with tears flooding from her eyes. Yes, ma'am, I'm sure your duck is definitely dead. She says, but how can you be so sure? I mean, you haven't done any testing on him or anything, have you? Perhaps he's just stunned or in a coma or something. The vet rolls his eyes, turns around and leaves the room. A few minutes later, he returns with a black Labrador retriever. And as the duck's owner watches in amazement, the Labrador stands on his hind legs, puts his front paws on the examination table and sniffs around the duck from top to bottom. The dog then looks up at the vet with sad eyes and shakes his head. The vet pats the dog on the head and takes it out of the room. And a few minutes later, the vet returns with a cat. The cat jumps up on the table and delicately sniffs the bird from its head to its feet. And after a moment, the cat looks up and shakes his head to the vet, meows softly and strolls out of the room. And the vet looks at the woman and says, look, ma'am, I'm really sorry but as I said before, this, this is most definitely a duck that is no longer of this world. Your duck is dead. The vet turns to his computer terminal, hits a few keys, and produces a bill, which he hands to the woman. And the duck's owner, still in shock, looks at the bill and sees that it's $150. $150 just to tell me my duck is dead? She shrieks. The vet shrugs his shoulder and says, I'm sorry, ma'am, if you'd taken my word for it, the bill would have just been $20. However, with the lab report and the CAT scan, it's now 150. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> I only got one laugh here in the house, so hopefully you like that one. So it's Easter Sunday. Uh, who would have ever guessed, right, that we'd be celebrating this way? There are some uh, interesting, these are some interesting times that we're living in. Uh, I, I want to reiterate to everyone this morning a, a truth, a deep truth a truth that I hold on to in uncertain times, although that we're separated um, physically, 
the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit in his mysterious way still gathers us. Friends, we're, we're, when we're meeting together in person and we're next to each other, it's not merely us who's doing the gathering. It's still the Spirit who's gathering us, linking us, building us, uniting us. And when we're not meeting together in close physical proximity, I still believe that, that the Spirit is nevertheless the one gathering us, linking us, building us, and uniting us. And so on this Easter Sunday of 2020, we may not be shoulder to shoulder in person, but we are gathered we are a gathered people. We're gathered right now by way of the Holy Spirit. And this is a day of celebration. It's a day to celebrate that. We raise our banners this morning that Christ has been raised. Indeed, Christ is risen. And, and it's this day that most consider the holiest or the most sacred of all days on the church calendar. And for a very good reason. The resurrection day is a foretaste, a dress rehearsal, so to speak, in anticipation of the great resurrection day that is to come. And I want to reiterate this morning, th this Christianity thing, it's not about heaven in the sense of leaving here, leaving earth, and going to some far off place. No, we need to remember that the term heaven is, is simply a synonym for the fullness of God's presence. Thus, this life that we're living, this, this life that we're celebrating today, it's preparing for God, the fullness of his presence to come to us. And that's a truth that we can lean into. It's our promise. It's our blessed assurance. And I hope this morning that this truth resonates with you and it resonates within you. I hope you'll take your stand on it and stake your life on it. Because you know what? In this world that we live in, uh, increasingly there are competing truths. People are finding it more and more difficult to know what is truth, right? And what's truth? Even as someone who spent most of my adult life doing in-depth research, I have to admit, when it comes to, to the news, for example, it's so politicized that it's tough to separate truth from fiction these days. When it, um, it's, it's tough to separate truth from falsehood. And of course, you know, it hasn't taken long for COVID-19, like most things in our country, to become highly politicized and highly polarized. Nevertheless, truth is important. This past week, I had the opportunity to speak on the phone with a Nobel Prize winner for nearly an hour. And I was ex very excited about this chance. This person, believe it or not, had done a lot of research on Jesus, and some of it was very compelling to read. But when we got to talking on the phone, not only was the individual very rude and arrogant, it didn't take long for the person to say uh, that whether Jesus lived or didn't, didn't matter, right? And it couldn't be proved anyways. I suggested mid-conversation that, in fact, Christianity stands or falls on certain historical events, certain historical realities, certain historical truths. This person, however, was relentless. It matters not whether Jesus lived, they said. And he said, faith is different than history. And historically, he says, Jesus' life cannot be sustained. The proof for it cannot be sustained. And it was clear, even a few minutes in, that this talk really was going to go nowhere. But still, I found it difficult to get off the phone. He kept going. He called me a rookie at one point, naive at another point, a newbie at another point, and mocked me a few times. It was crazy. It was really crazy. I've been in few conversations as polarizing and as puzzling as that one. And then there was another conversation I had this week. Someone asked me, what's wrong with our country? And they were referring to the fact that the daily abortion rates continue to outpace COVID-19 deaths. But few seem to care about that. And as I think about the difference between those two conversations, my head kind of spins a bit. 
is these conversations just added to the sort of shock of everything that's going on right now in our world amid all the the charts and the reports and the politics that we're seeing amid all of the the craziness amid all of the shock the unusualness on this Easter morning I want to offer a suggestion I want to suggest something that we should do or better yet some things that we should do three things in particular lament laugh and lean in and I'll circle back to this point several more times, but I think our focal verses for this morning, uh, odd as it may initially seem, kind of speak to my suggestion. So I want us to consider Revelation 6, 9 to 17 as we round out chapter 6 of Revelation this morning. So the text says this, verse 9, And whenever he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the soul's of those slain on account of the word of God and on account of the testimony they had. And they cried out in a loud voice saying, How much longer, holy and true master? Are you not judging and avenging our blood from among those dwelling in the land? Yes, you are. And he gave them each a white robe and spoke to them in order that they would be patient still for a small time until their completion and their fellow slaves and their siblings, those getting ready to be killed as they also themselves were, and I looked when he opened the sixth seal and a great earthquake happened and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the whole moon became as blood and the stars of the sky fell onto the land as a fig tree throwing her figs by way of a great shaking wind and the sky disappeared as a rolled document and every mountain and island of their places was moved and the kings of the land and the magistrates and the military commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and freed person hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and they said to the caves and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of the one sitting upon the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because it has come the great day of their wrath and who is able to stand all right here's the point these verses we just read they give us kind of like last week's text uh, opposing pictures they help us differentiate between the faithful bride of christ and the unfaithful bride and here's the thing in doing that they give us opposing pictures of what it looks like to lament to laugh and to lean in. So let's dig into what this text is saying on the surface and just beneath it. First, we need to, to um, remember that we're dealing with the third vision in Revelation here. There are 12 total, but this is the third one. So we're still in this third vision. And in this third vision, we see these seven seven seals, right? You should recall that these are not literal physical seals or stamps with the sign of ring. They're, they're acts, right? They're acts. That speech acts that solidify a spoken word or a deed. These seals have to do with what we talked about last week, the ketubah, or this marriage contract or marriage covenant. So these seven seals, when they're gathered up and taken together, they reveal to us fully the characteristics of what the false bride and the true bride look like. So let, let's start with the former, this false bride. I want to I want to point out a couple of characteristics here. First, note that the false bride consists of various groups of people, kings, magistrates, military commanders, the strong, every slave and freed person. And these various people groups make up the false bride. But the crazy thing is this, at the sight of or coming of the Lord, they hide themselves in caves and rocks in the mountains in hopes of hiding from the Lord. 
And this image, it just blows my mind. I know it doesn't seem that crazy right now, but here, here's why it blows my mind. It's one of the most potent images, I think, in all of Revelation. Here's why. What, what the text is saying is that these people, rather than joining in the chorus of those around the thrones and praising God, they would rather hide themselves. That is, they'd rather, uh, rather than give their lives to God, they cling so desperately to their lives that they would rather hide than admit who God is. It's a scene of pride, utter pride. It's a picture of what a person looks like who would rather be the Lord of their own lives than have Christ as the Lord of their life. And this is a chief trait of the unfaithful bride. But there's another one. It's mentioned in both 16 and 17, wrath, or more specifically, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we often speak of, of this as God's wrath, and I'm convinced that God's wrath is something we badly misunderstand. We misunderstand this badly. We, we misunderstand it in two ways. One, by often associating wrath, God's wrath, with just the future and not realizing that God's wrath is actually here and now in the present. And two, thinking that God's wrath originates with God. Now, it sounds probably like it should originate with God, but let me explain this. The reality is God's wrath is here. It is present. It is now. It's active right now. But God's wrath isn't anger. It isn't retribution. It isn't payback. God's wrath uh, isn't actually uh, God's act of honoring human choices to be, or sorry, God's act is uh, honoring humans' choices to be separate from God. So I want you to think about it this way. This is one way to think about it. God's wrath originates with humans. It's their desire to be apart from God. You could almost even take that word wrath in the phrase God's wrath and replace it with human desire to be separate from God. But as much as humans may want that, they can't make God's choice for him. God has to allow that. He has to make the choice himself. And so in that way, it is his wrath, the honoring of people's choices, humans' choices, to be separate from him. This, too, is a key trait of someone who is unfaithful or of the unfaithful imposter bride. And so there's a stark contrast here with the faithful bride. And an earmark trait is that the faithful bride yields itself to what they call the holy and true master as he's called in verse 10. And we don't just gloss over that either. They believe that he is their master, that he is holy, that he is true. And these are important claims and beliefs. Just as well, they desire justice, the faithful bride. Unlike the third horseman that we saw last week, Christ's followers desire justice. They don't desire injustice. And they desire God's justice. And desiring God's justice is a form of desiring his presence. Do you get that? To desire for God to make a just call or to act justly or to speak justly is to desire God to be present as a just figure in our midst. So again, to desire God's justice is a form of desiring God's presence. And on this Easter Sunday, this resurrection reminds us as Christ's bride of who we are to be how we are to live, how we are to speak, how we are to think, how we are to act. And it reminds us of who we are and whose we are. So part of, what, part of what it means to be his bride, to be his, is that we be a people who please. 
him. And this is where I suggest to you that God is pleased when we lament, laugh, and lean in to him. What do I mean by lament? I mean that we are a people who bring our sorrows before God. We're not ashamed to do that. We bring our worries, our stresses, our anxieties, our hurts, our pasts, our presence, those things that, that have and may continue to wound us spiritually, emotionally, physically. In Scripture, interestingly, about one-third of the Psalms are laments, songs and prayers born out of pain and suffering. Things like, God, why have you forsaken me? And it would have been better to not have been born. And why, O oh Lord? And as we saw in the verses above in Revelation, we, we get a hint of lament there. How much longer, O oh Lord? But one interesting thing is that in the Psalms, all of the laments, except one, I think, eventually turn into praise by the end. So there's this movement from lament to to praise. And that movement itself tells us a couple of things. One, that skipping grief when we need to grieve, skipping lament when we need to lament, and immediately rushing to praise can be an unhealthy thing. We should lament. There is a time and a place and a season for that. But two, um, there's a time and a season and a place for praise, and it should follow lament sometimes. There's this time to rejoice, time to be joyful, to be happy, to laugh. And I want to submit to you this morning that in the face of hardship, one of the best weapons that we have as believers is laughter. Laughter, I think, can be a weapon of spiritual warfare. In the face of cancer, we should be able, as odd as it sounds, to laugh in its face. We should be able at some point, maybe not right then, maybe not right away, maybe not even for a while, but there should come a point when we can laugh in the face of any pain that we've encountered in this life. We should be able to move to a place where we laugh in the face of strife and disease and loss and heartache. Sometimes being able to laugh in the middle of it shows great strength. This week, one of my kids said to me, Dad, did you hear the one about the coronavirus? I said, no. She said, that's because it was an inside joke. And I thought that was a, a pretty good joke. It's hilarious, right? The, the point isn't to take away from the seriousness of this situation, but it's to show that it doesn't rule us. We can laugh in its face. Christians of all people should be a people who laugh. It pleases God when we, in our rawest state, are able to lament and when we are able to laugh and be ourselves. It pleases God when we're able also to lean into him. See, many times when pain and struggle have befallen us, we may be tempted to turn away via questions, via doubts. But the reality is that's precisely when we need to lean in. When I'm hiking with my, my kids, with my family on these Hawaiian ridge lines, um, these hikes where you, have, you make a wrong step on the left or you make a wrong step on the right and it could get bad really fast, you know, I often have to tell them repeatedly, lean in, lean into the mountain. Right? Lean in. And it's in, a, it's in leaning in that we are in the safest of spots. We're the most secure. And so I want to reiterate this morning, God is pleased when we bring our whole selves to him, our laments, our laughs, and our leans. Friends, Revelation, you know, it, it's often taught from some crazy perspectives by some crazy people. People develop these wild charts and these wild diagrams and this wild art and pictures. It's wild. But all that is, is for the birds. It's crazy. That's not at all what Revelation is saying. It's not even how it works. What Revelation offers us 
instead is an account of God's hopes for us, his bride. You know, I was reading this week about a figure in church history named Julian of Norwich. Now, Julian actually wasn't her name. We actually don't know her name, but she's called that because that's the name of the church that she was connected to. And if you've never heard her story, she was quite literally connected to the church. She was what has been called an anchoress. That, by the way, is our word of the week, anchoress. An anchoress was a woman who would withdraw from societal life to lead an intense religious life, particularly one of prayer. And what happened with Julian was that she stood in an area just outside the church, and while she stood there, builders built a brick wall around her. And literally, they walled her in. She spent the rest of her life there. She had three windows in her walls, one to look into the sanctuary, one to look out toward the street, and one to receive things like food and drink. But People would come to Julian frequently and request prayer from her and seek insight from her. And everyone in the town knew that she was there 24-7. They knew that someone in their town was constantly praying, a spiritual anchor for their town, as it were. And while I'm not particularly fond of how all that was done, the bigger point is worth considering. What does it mean for Christ's followers to be anchors for him wherever they are? What would it mean for people on our island to begin looking at the Bridge Church as the island's spiritual anchor? What would it mean if, if people were drawn to Christ through us, his bride? Friends, in the face of hardship, temptation, crisis, people yearn for that. And, and we should yearn for that. And here's another truth. God yearns for us to be real, our raw selves. He's pleased when we come to him to lament, laugh, and lean in. To him, our anchor. I'm of the view that we can cultivate goodness and truth and beauty here in this place now by doing those things, lamenting, laughing, and leaning in. When friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, etc. see the real us and the raw us and the lighter side of us, the faithful side of us, they'll gravitate toward it. Last week I was talking about this concept of the new normal. As a phrase that I'm hearing more and more these days, another term I've been hearing a lot lately is the word diagnosed. This, this number of people diagnosed and that number of people diagnosed, it's used a lot right now. And so it got me thinking about uh, diagnosis and, and what that means and about the, the fact that the point of a diagnosis is, is kind of to detect what's going on, what's beneath even, what's there. And so here's my point. When we lament, when we laugh, when we lean and people see that, they'll make a diagnosis about the God that we have yielded our lives to, the God that we serve. And so this Easter weekend, I hope to leave you with two things to think about. The first was what I discussed on Good Friday, that Latin phrase, crux probat, crux probat omnia. The cross tests all, or the cross uh, probes all, the cross proves all. The second is today's point, that God is pleased when we lament laugh and lean in. And I hope that you'll take those things to mind and heart. As I come to a close here, I want to share just one more thing with you. This week I was reading a short write-up by a guy named Phil Goley. And at one point he talks about his interest in woodworking and how much he likes making things like uh, tables. A kitchen table, in fact, was the very first thing that he ever tried to make as a woodworker. And it came at his wife's suggestion. 
He, he talked about how this love of woodworking and making things with wood stemmed from his childhood. His grandpa had a woodworking shop and he would go in there and breathe in all the smells and the odors and just wonder at the possibilities of what could be made. His first table project, project as an adult, Goli says, took a month. Uh, it was a, a very cold February, and once he was finished building it, he took five more weeks coding it and recoding it and recoding it until the table was just right, just what he wanted. He says this, and I'm quoting him, it, took a, it takes a long time to get the finish right on a piece of furniture, but you can't hurry it or the flaws will show, and all your hard work will be for nothing. Woodworking is a great way to learn that doing something worthwhile takes time. It's possible to make a table in a hurry. It's not possible, however, to make a table worth passing on to your grandchildren in a hurry. And as he continues, he recounts a friend coming over for dinner one time and just describing how much he loved the table. He loved it so much that this, this friend did that he asked Goalie if he would build him one. But because Goalie didn't want to make his, uh, a business of his hobby, he declined. And still, it got them talking about craftsmanship. And they lamented the fact that craftsmanship today is... is is almost all but gone. People expect tables that are slapped together uh, in just a matter of minutes to last a long time, but they just don't. Then Goli says this, we got to talking about how that isn't only true about furniture, it's true about life. Folks get discouraged because God doesn't make them saints overnight. They don't understand all the years of God work that go into making one's life a thing of goodness, truth, and beauty. A lot of shaping, a lot of smoothing, a lot of finishing. And if we rush the process, the flaws will surely show. And he closes saying, once a week, I still rub a coat of lemon oil into my table. It reminds me that my table is never really finished. Kind of like me. Friends, neither are we. Neither are we. We're not finished. We're works in progress. And so, so often we need to be reminded that God's will for us isn't a mystery. It isn't. It's spelled out in scriptures plain as day. Moreover, it's the same for every single one of us. Thessalonians says that God's will for us is, wait for it, sanctification. Being holy, becoming holy. And here's the bottom line for today. When we come to God with lament, with laughter, and when we lean into him, it's all an admission that we are his and that we're all still works in progress. But most importantly, his works in progress. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what the hope of Easter offers us. So if you're listening this morning and your heart has been strangely warmed and you'd like to trust Jesus and pledge your allegiance to him, I want to give you that opportunity. I want to invite you to do that. If that's you, you can take a, that, that first step by confessing your need for God to God. Admitting that you stand in need of Christ's help and rescue. And that you trust Christ. And friends, if you've done that this morning, just now, I want to encourage you to share that with me or with another Christian you may know. And I want to encourage you to get plugged into a church that is faithful to the teachings of Scripture and places the cross at the center. Crux probat omnia. The cross tests all. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to close with a benediction. And immediately following that, we're going to close with the doxology. So if you would, turn your palms upright and receive this blessing. And now on this Easter morning, may God give you an abundance of faith. May you be rich in love. And may you sow the gospel extravagantly. And with greater frequency in the days ahead, may you lament, laugh, and lean into God. 
May it be. Go in peace, brothers and sisters. Amen.